to be how passion and discipline work together in everyday life. So Exodus chapter 31, verse 1. And this is a segment of Scripture that not a lot of people know is in the Bible. It's uh, sort of obscure. Exodus 31.1, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, and I filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skill, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed Oholiab, son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I've given ability to all the skill workers to make everything I've commanded you, the tent of meeting, the Ark of the Covenant, law with the atonement cover on it, and all the other furnishings of the tent, the table and its articles, the pure gold lampstands, all its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, and all its utensils, the basin with its stand, and also the woven garments, both the sacred garments for Aaron, the priest, and for the garments of his sons, when they serve as priests, the anointing oil, the fragrant incense for the holy place, they are to make them just as I have commanded you. Now, the significance of this is that God himself anointed these men with a special anointing and special skill sets. These men just didn't learn how to do this on their own. This was a sovereign gifting of God, an exceptional thing <clears throat> that happens rarely in Scripture. And this may be the only place where it happens to this extent. Because these two men were set, the Bezalel was the leader, Oholiab was his assistant, but God also gave skill to all the laborers to do this. And if you go back and read, it's, it's not exciting reading, but if you really want to know what they did, go back and read the chapters in Exodus preceding this, starting with just the tabernacle. It is amazing how specific the instructions God gave were for building the tabernacle. Now, this was not the temple that Solomon built. This was the first tabernacle that was built and constructed under Moses' leadership after the children of Israel had, been, had, been, uh, had, had made their exodus from Egypt. They had received the Ten Commandments, and now under the auspices of this law, they're going to construct this tabernacle and put the, build the Ark of the Covenant, put it in the tabernacle, and God is going to come and fill the tabernacle with his presence. So God gives these men special skill to learn how to do the work specifically and exactly. And you go back and read it, and a lot of people think that God doesn't really care about details. If you're happy, God's happy. You go back and read these chapters preceding this, and God is a detail fanatic. He is very concerned with exactly how we do things and how he wants things done. So tonight, I want, to, I want to talk about how passion and discipline work together in everyday life. I'm going to keep this brief because there's more bad weather coming in after whatever this little first part is, and there's tornadoes possible and all kind of stuff, so we're going to keep it short tonight. But the first point I want to share with you is this. We always follow our passions. If you want to find out what somebody's passion is, look at their checkbook and look at their calendar and go in their basement and look at their stuff. Because if you find a guy that loves golf, he's going to have golf clubs, golf balls, golf shoes, golf bags, golf shirts. He's probably going to join a, a membership at a golf club, and he's going to be a golfer. 
find a guy like me who loves hunting, fishing, survival, and bushcraft, you're going to find fishing lures, rods, reels, line, hooks, sinkers, all kinds of stuff, fly fishing equipment, bass fishing equipment, saltwater equipment, brim fishing equipment. You name a fish, I've got the equipment to catch it. Hunting, archery, black powder, rifle, shotgun, small game, big game, you name it, ducks, anything. If it crawls, swims, or flies, or walks, I hunt it. You can find that in my checkbook. You can find it in my basement. I've got, I've got knives, axes, saws, tarps, camo, tent, all kind of stuff for bushcraft. I've got fire-making stuff. I've got cover. I've got cooking stuff, camping stuff, survival gear. It's all down there. I've collected this over 50 years of my life. Some of it belonged to my dad. But the point is, we follow our passions. If you find somebody that's a foodie, they love to cook, you're going to find a nice set of pots and pans in their house. You're going to find all kinds of spices, all kinds of stuff in the refrigerator. They're going to talk about their favorite stores. We follow our passions. So passions, and, and you know, I know Rick Warren wrote the book, The, the, church, uh, the Purpose Driven Church and The Purpose Driven Life, and everybody bought those books and read them, and they were good books. But I'm going to tell you something. You can know your purpose and not fulfill it. But you are always going to chase your passion. The thing that you love to do, you're going to make arrangements to do that. So purpose or not, passion is what's going to drive you. So what does discipline have to do with passion? In my mind, discipline and passion are inextricably woven together. And if you listen... I know it's a small group of us here tonight. It's a weird weather situation. This is kind of one of those weird nights. But you're here for a reason. And if you want to know how to accomplish anything in your life, pay attention to these four or five keys I'm going to give you because this is really the how to accomplish anything that you want to. We follow our passions, but discipline empowers us to choose the right ones and to go about fulfilling them in the best ways. That's the first point. We always follow our passions. Discipline empowers us to choose the right passions and to go about fulfilling them in the very best ways. You know, there are some bad ways to chase a passion, and then there are some good ways to chase a passion. It's hard to take a bad road and end up in a good destination. So we need to understand not just, that's my passion, but discipline, is that the right passion? Should I have that passion? Just because my, is, is that a fleshly passion, or is that something that's in my spirit? We need to learn how to differentiate between those things. And listen, here's the key. Our passions need to be God's passions for us. But then how do I go about fulfilling that passion? Let me tell you a secret about church growth. Church growth has been the subject of more conversation in the kingdom of God than just about anything since the crucifixion. Everybody wants to know how to grow a big church. I'm going to tell you, growing a big church is the easiest thing in the world to do. All you have to do is get up here and tell people what they want to hear. Encourage them, keep it light and fluffy, keep it shallow and easy, and just tell them everything's going to work out, man. God loves you. You're going to make it. God's on your hat, on your, on your, he's got your back, and you're going to be fine. It's all going to work out. You're going to have a big church. But when you put responsibility on people, when you talk about holiness, when you talk about obedience, the stuff that the Bible actually teaches, the stuff that actually makes us overcomers, when you talk to people about the truth of the Word of God, we understand that there's more to it than just get up and have your happy thought every day. Then you might have a healthy church, but chances are it's not going to be quite as big as some. That doesn't necessarily mean every big church is bad. I'm not saying that. I'm not glorifying small churches. I've seen some small ones full of witchcraft too. But we have to maintain truth 
to not just the whole counsel of truth, and this is important, but the whole counsel of truth in balance in our ministry. If you preach on repentance, you know, once every year, you preach on holiness once a year, you preach on what, you know, the, the basics of Christianity, you give an altar call once every three or four months for salvation, come on, man. We need to be on this thing. We need to be tr- preaching the truth. We need to be on the cutting edge, on the tip of the spear. The purpose of the church, listen to this, is not to grow itself big, which seems to have become the definition of all success in Christianity. The church got big. Boy, they got it going on over there. I've heard that so many times. Let me tell you who's got it going on over there is the people who do one thing. They preach the word and people get saved. That's who's got, got it going on over there. Now, discipline teaches us the right ways to pursue and fulfill our passions. There is a right way to make your passion become reality. And there's a wrong way. In fact, there are many wrong ways. There are many lesser desirable ways than best practice. But we need to be doing what we want to do. We need to be chasing our dreams and passions. But we need to be, through discipline, doing it the right way. And the right way is not always the easiest way. It's not always the most expedient way. It is usually not the path of least resistance. The right way is usually fraught with difficulty and challenge and obstacle and hindrance and delay and flesh and all the stuff that we have to war against. But that's still the right way to do it. So if you want to pursue your passions and you want to see God's dream in your life become reality, then be willing to pay the price of discipline by determining the right way to pursue those passions. Number two, Satan, people, fears, Negative past experiences, all these things conspire to steal our passion. Discipline helps us bring our thoughts into captivity and keeps us on track. So I'm going to read that to you again. Satan, people, fears, negative experiences all conspire to steal our passion. There are a few things that Satan loves to do more than steal your passion. Take away your desire. See the sparkle die and dim in your eyes. See that twinkle diminish. See that smile at the corner of your mouth turn into a permanent little frown. He loves to do that. I remember watching a video years ago on a Satanist priest, a high priest in the Satanist church, and he said that when he was, he was operating, his, and this wasn't some guy that later turned out to be fake. This, was, this guy was really involved in it, and he said that he was a victim. He was taken as a child to be a, uh, a priest, and he knew this little girl named Amy, and she was, she was kidnapped, basically, to be a sacrifice. And he said what the Satanist church wanted to do, and they taught him this because they were grooming him to be a priest. He got out of it, but they were grooming him. They said what they wanted to do is kidnap children, and they wanted to take away their wonder at the world. They wanted to destroy their innocence, and they wanted to see the light and sparkle in their eyes dim to a dead glaze. What a horrible, horrible outlook on life is that. That's exactly what Satan wants to do to you and me. So Satan, people, fears, negative experiences all conspire to steal our passion. But discipline helps bring our thoughts into captivity to keep us on track. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says, We take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. So what does the Bible say about our future as Christians? It says no weapon formed against us will prosper. It says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. It says, through Christ, we can do all things. 
It says we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. It says that we are more than overcomers through Him. Jesus looked at the man with the son who was demon-possessed and said everything is possible to them that believe. That's what the Bible says about you and me. So we can't live in the fear and the negativity and the cynicism and the doubt that, that wants to take away our wonder at the hope and possibility of fulfilling our passions. We've got to live in the realm of discipline where we take those fears and we take those thoughts of failure, those, those, those concerns about the future, and we bring them into captivity and make them obedient to Christ. And when we make them obedient to Christ, He is Lord over all. That means that those fears and those thoughts of doubt and those cynical attitudes have to submit to the Lordship of Christ. And it means that you and I are, are overcomers. It's not just just good Bible verses. It means that's who we are. That's who God sees us as. So when you think about your dreams and your goals and your passions, don't just think, well, I, I, hope, I hope I can do that. I, I guess I should try. I know God can do anything, but stop. Let discipline help us bring every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. Is it God's will for you to be a failure? Is it God's will for us to be embarrassed? Is it God's will for us to just fall, crash, and burn? I don't think so. I think a lot of times our own, and I'm not saying it's God's, God, I'm not telling you that it's going to be easy and God's just going to make you a champion overnight. There's a price to pay for success in any endeavor. And anybody that tells you less than that will lie to you about other things too. And they're lying to you about that. Success, making it, you know, I used to play football a lot. And man, I ran fullback, halfback. I was the kicker, the kick return guy, the punt return guy. If there was a football in the field, most of the time I had it in my arms and I was running with it. And I got to tell you, it takes a high price. I have broken bones. I have bruises. Guys gouge me in the eyes, put dirt in my ear hole, all kind of stuff. That's part of the game, you know. When I got into martial arts, the thing I hated worse was stretching. Oh, my goodness, so painful. And, and all the exhausting things you had to do to learn how to throw roundhouse kicks and all this stuff is just very difficult. But there's a price to be paid for anything you want to be good at. You all know that. We're not, we're not children. We know the deal with that. If you want to be successful, it, it, it demands a price. The point, though, of discipline working together with passion is that discipline, and this is so huge, and this is not the fun part. See, preachers focus on the fun part. I focus on the truth part. If you really want to make it to here, it's discipline that paves the way for you to get there. On a day-to-day basis, you got to grind it out. you got to hammer on your craft. you got to pound on your vision and your dream. you got to be willing to work at it because anything worth having and worth achieving and worth maintaining is, is going to cost you effort. And discipline is the doorway that leads to freedom to find your dreams to become reality. I know what it looks like and feels like to walk around at about 5% body fat. I know what that feels like, be able to grab a hold of a 350 Chevy engine block and carry it around the yard. I I felt like there was nothing I couldn't lift up. I know what that feels like. I don't know what it feels like now, but I know what it used to feel like. It feels good. (laughs) Now it just hurts, but then it felt good. But I paid a high price to get to that place. And anything you want to do, I look at, I listen to Dave Varney play the guitar. I've always wanted to play the guitar. And you know one of the main reasons I've always wanted to play the guitar? I play the keyboards. It's really difficult to carry a piano down to a campfire on the beach and play it for your wife. It's a lot easier to carry a guitar. I've never carried a piano to the beach and set it up and played for my wife. 
And these guys carry a guitar. It's like, that's just so cool, you know. But I was never able to do it because I don't know how to play the guitar. I know like three or four chords and that's it. I look at Dave play the guitar. And I think, man, I wish I could play like that. But do I? We see that. What we want is the dream achieved with no effort. How many of you have ever dreamed in your dream that you could just do something that you really can't do? I've dreamed, I've dreamed that I knew how to play the guitar. And it didn't matter where I put my fingers, it just sounded great. You know, on the fret, it was awesome. I love dreams like that. Then I get up and it's like, dadgummit, I can't do that. That was a lie, you know, it's so irritating. But if I really wanted to play the guitar like Dave, I'd be willing to practice like Dave. If I really wanted to be able to play golf like Phil Mickelson, I would have practiced like Phil Mickelson. I want to learn how to fly fish. So I learned how to fly fish. And I'm good at it, but it took a long time to get there. I wanted to preach for a living, so I studied and practiced. And when I first preached my first message, I was horrified. Now I'm just as comfortable up here as I am in my recliner at home, and that's the truth. So anything you want to get good at, discipline is the way to get there. Discipline keeps us from living in fear. It keeps us from thinking about failure. It keeps us out of the negative. It keeps us in the realm of faith. It keeps us in the realm of vision. It keeps us in the realm of believing in God and, and believing in yourself. I'm not talking about humanism. Apart from God, self can't do one thing. But if you believe in God to work through you, then God through you can do amazing things. And I can tell you something, God's not going to come down here himself and live your dream for you. God is going to want you to live your dream and him help you to fulfill it. Well, that's powerful stuff. So fear, negative experiences all conspire to steal our passion. Discipline helps bring our thoughts into captivity and keep us on track. Number three, studies have proven that any activity we keep up for 30 days, it used to be they said 21 days. But what they've come to the point to understand now is by day 21, you do have a habit. You can form any habit in 21 days, but it takes the extra 10 days for that habit to seat and for you to begin to see enough results that you think, I'm going to stick with this. So the new, the, new, the new time frame is it takes 30 days for us doing any activity every day for those 30 days, any activity that we keep up, keep up for 30 days in a row becomes a habit. Discipline starts this process of habit forging, and once it becomes a habit, it is then self-perpetuating. So choose habits that align with your passion. You can create your own habits. If your habit is to, let's just say, get in great health, and let's just say you're a little, you're a little heavy, and you want to you shed some weight. And I can put myself right, at, right in that category. Well, the way to do that is to begin to discipline yourself in your diet. When I used to be into bodybuilding years ago, they, they, the rule of thumb was that bodybuilding is about 85% what you eat. I learned that that's true. You don't build a great physique just in the gym. You also build that physique at the dinner table and in the bedroom. Because if you don't get rest and sleep... Your muscles can't grow because that's where they heal and regenerate. All the gym basically does is tear down. The food provides the amino acids necessary to rebuild, and the rest gives you the time your muscles need to heal. So if you want to get bigger, you've got to eat right, you've got to work hard, you've got to sleep like you mean it. So it's important for us to understand that any change we want to make in our lives, anything we want to progress toward, we have to, on purpose, habits, habits that occur and become habits by default, 
are seldom good habits. But it's the habits that we on purpose and intentionally forge into our lives. Those are the ones that are beneficial. So whatever, you, whatever your dream is, it doesn't matter what it is. You want to become a great seamstress. You want to be the darts champion for the world. You, you, want, to, you want to be a missionary to, to you know, Washington, D.C., whatever. <laughs> you have to start forging habits that point in the direction of that dream. And you start forging those habits one day at a time, every day, and you start for a 30-day period of time, and once you've done that, those things then become a part of your lifestyle, and then you keep them going. Discipline is the way to do that. So you see, again, how discipline works together with passion, and discipline is, is really the, the greased skid I should say the uphill climb. Discipline is the uphill climb, and at the top of the mountain is the goal you want to reach. Discipline keeps you on track. Discipline keeps you motivated. Discipline keeps you focused. Discipline keeps you forging habits. That, and as those habits become lifestyle addictions almost, they become second nature, those habits that you forge into your life, one on top of the other, become the steps and the stepping stones to your dream becoming reality. Bad habits form naturally. Good habits are formed by strong-willed, intentional design and purpose. Bad habits form easy because they are what, what our flesh naturally wants to do. Good habits are more challenging because they're difficult. I don't know anybody that has a broccoli habit, a Brussels sprout habit. I just love Brussels sprouts. I just keep a bag with me all the time. I do, do a test in your house or where you work. Put a bowl of Brussels sprouts up, and right beside them, put a bowl of peanut butter M&Ms. See which one gets empty the fast, fastest. Say goodbye to the bowl of M&Ms. They're going to be gone. The Brussels sprouts will rot before they're gone. All right? Because we have easily developed bad habits. We walk by, we see Brussels sprouts or M&Ms. We're going to grab some M&Ms, and we're going to go on our way. That's a naturally developed bad habit. Number four, God is not the author of chaos. When we rearrange our lives to chase our dreams, saying no is equally important as saying yes. Discipline helps us do both. I've counseled literally thousands of people in going on 40 years of ministry now. And over that time and through those counseling sessions, I have learned that people have a very difficult time being their own gatekeepers. If you don't know this, I'll tell you. There's a, there's a quasi-profession that has, that has made an upsurge in recent years in the ministry and in corporate America, and it's called a life coach. Not a baseball or sports coach, but a life coach. And what you do is you hook up with this person and you, you go to them and you say, I want you to be my life coach. And basically what they are is someone who has had a lot of experience in the area that you're working in. They're usually older and they're usually uh, kind of a teacher, a mentor type. And either, either for just a relationship benefit or for a fee, they will, they will counsel you and advise you on things you should do and ways to do them and things you should not. Sort of like a, sort of like a good friend on a professional mentoring basis. 
life coach. And one of the most important things that I've learned, I guess, advising and counseling and coaching people over the years, is that, that a lot of people have a very difficult time saying no. A lot of people have a very difficult time maintaining their own gates, their own barriers, their own boundaries. That's why they go to life coaches. The life coach says, hey, you don't have time to do all the things that you're trying to do. You need to decide what you want to do, and you need to trim down things so you can excel at a few things and not try to, to, to cover so much ground. I'm amazed that people will walk away from a meeting like that, and the first things they'll cut out of their lives is their work in the church. That's a bad mistake. Seek first the kingdom of God, and what? All these things will be added to you. Don't, don't immediately trim out first the church and your work for the kingdom. That's the most important stuff any of us does. When we stand before God, he's not going to reward us based on how good of an accountant we were or how good of a grocery bagger or how great of a lawyer. He's going to reward us based on, based on our, our, first of all, if we're saved, and secondly, our work in the kingdom. Go read it. People don't want to believe that our reward in heaven is not based on salvation. We get to heaven based on salvation. You go read 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, it is clear as a bell. Your reward is based on your work in the church. Now, that's just the truth. It's in there in black and white. It's not even hinted at. It's just clearly stated. So we need to get busy working in the church because where we spend eternity and how we live that and what kind of blessings and rewards God gives us is works-based. Salvation is not. Salvation is not works-based. It is faith-based. But the reward we get... It depends on how much we're willing to work for his kingdom. Nobody's saying amen to this. Y'all understand, and I'm telling you the truth now. I've got to stand before God and give account of what I'm saying. I'm not saying this to manipulate you into working in the church. It's just biblical truth. Praise God. Thank you. So when we arrange our lives to chase our dreams, saying no is equally important as saying yes. Discipline. Proverbs has a lot to say about wisdom and discipline. Wisdom and discipline. Prudence and discipline. Wisdom and self-control. It goes on and on and on about those two things. I think those two themes run through the book of Proverbs more than anything else. Wisdom and discipline. And they work together. Because wisdom, wisdom, true wisdom, is going to generate discipline. Discipline is going to generate positive habits that point toward the things we want to achieve. And prolonged, determined, persevered discipline results in the goals we're setting being achieved, moving us closer toward the success we want to see, whatever that success may be. You, you, hear, you hear messages like this and, and people can't decide what you're talking about. I'm talking about anything you want to achieve. It's the same principles that apply. I'm applying them in my mind toward becoming a better Christian, a, a, a better pastor, a better speaker, a, a more close man of God to the, to the things God has called me to be. But discipline, discipline helps us to say no and say yes both appropriately. I believe this is why Paul told Timothy, study so that you may show yourself approved unto God as workmen who correctly divide the word of truth. We need to know how to say yes to the right things, and we need to know how to say no to the wrong things. Now, this is very, very, very important. For everything God tries to lead us into that's legitimate and that's beneficial, that's biblical, that's heavenward, that's good, that's noble, admirable, praiseworthy, excellent, any of those things, for everything God tries to lead us into and grow us into, Satan always generates 
a convincing counterfeit. Every single time. And you can look for, how many times have you got ready to make a decision about something you wanted to do, and just about the time you got ready to make that decision, three or four other possibilities popped up at the same time. That doesn't happen by accident. There's something God is trying to get us to do. There's a door God's trying to get us to walk through, and Satan knows it. And then Satan paints and puts up four or five more doors around that one to cloud the issue and confuse us with these counterfeit offerings. This is why relationship with God is so important. We have to know the voice of God. In order to know the voice of God, we have to know the heart of God. We have to know God well enough to be able to ask ourselves, is this something, my God, that I know would tell me to do? Or is this my flesh? Is this the enemy? Is this my culture? Is this myself? Is this some other human interface in this? Or does this feel and sound like the voice of my God? That's why the Bible tells us that discernment in 1 Corinthians 12 is just one of the most important gifts to test the spirits, to know what spirit's talking to us. So we have to learn how to say no, and we have to learn how to say no sometimes to things that we like, and that's not easy. We have to learn how to say no to things that we enjoy. We have to learn how to say no because the only way to achieve success is to make good decisions. And sometimes good decisions mean saying no to yourself. But it's not just enough to say no. We have to also be able to say yes to certain things. Now here's the kicker to this. We're going to be saying no to a lot of things we'd really like to do, and we're going to be saying yes to a whole bunch of stuff we probably wouldn't want to do. Because discipline is not natural for us. Discipline to do things that, that are not comfortable is not natural to us. If you walk out in the woods during deer season, you're never going to see a deer trail, not one, not ever, that goes straight up a mountain and straight down the other side. Not one, ever. You're always going to see deer trails that parallel the ridge, just like a road going up the mountain, and they'll go around that ridge. And if you've got a ridge line, that, like this is the top of the ridge, and there's a low place in it, that's called a saddle. You go, that's one of the first places on a topographical map I look for. Before I ever set foot on the property, I look for saddles. I look for mountains and hills and ridges, and then on the topographical map, it looks like the, the lines go like this, and then they come together, and then there's a round, and that little part right there, the lowest point on a ridge, the lowest place to cross on a ridge, 85% of the deer that walk across that ridge are going to cross right in that saddle. Why? Because it is the path of least resistance. And they're trying to conserve energy. It's a survival motif for them. For us, it's, it's industriousness versus laziness. It just is. We have to decide, am I going to take the path of least resistance or am I going to tighten the screws on myself? Am I, am I really going to make this happen? Yeah, I think a lot about Colonel Sanders, man. He was like in his late 70s or 80s. When he retired, had $105 in his pocket. No retirement plan. You know that old man didn't feel like selling chicken. He sold his first chicken out of the trunk of his car to people he knew. Several years, just a few years later, he had a multi-billion dollar business going. Now you know he was old. His body hurt to get up. Energy, passion to chase a dream of frying chicken. 
I mean, come on, man. But he was motivated because he didn't have any retirement. And he decided, I know how to do one thing. I know how to cook chicken. And now Kentucky Fried Chicken is all over the world because some old guy decided he's going to sell some chicken out of the trunk of his car. As at his advanced age, he decided, you know what? It's not too late to do something great. I remember in the book of Joshua, God spoke to Joshua. And he said this to him. He said, you are very old, but there is still much land yet to be possessed. I just love that. Don't you ever think it's too late for you to do anything God puts in your heart. Because it's not. Number five, I'm going to close with this one. And normally we, we go a little bit longer on Wednesday nights, but tonight because of the weather, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close it down. Quote, if it was easy, everybody would do it. End quote. Hindrances, delays, detours, and outright opposition will find you. Discipline of the mind to remember the why of your passion and discipline of conduct to keep you moving forward is what is required. If it was easy, everybody would do it. So if you want to do something great in your life, know from the get-go, it's not going to be easy. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. How many world-famous chicken places are there out in America now? I mean, you just, anywhere you go, you find one. I can think of two, maybe three. There's Kentucky Fried Chicken, and there's Chick-fil-A, and maybe Church's Chicken in some places. But the big one is Kentucky Fried Chicken. Of course, Chick-fil-A is pretty big now, but they do mostly sandwiches. Boy, they make good chicken, though. I mean, I hadn't had one in a long time because I'm plant-based whole foods. You miss it, Pastor? Yeah, I do miss it. <laughs> Sometimes I'll have a passion for wings. It just comes on me. Or sausage. You know what I miss? I miss terribly a good hamburger grilled on the grill at home. I grill a mean burger. Grilled sausage. Oh, my God, I need to shut up. I'm going home to eat a salad. Salad, baby. See, you got to know what to say no to. Meat will give you cancer. I just, just got to, and I got to clean my arteries out. I got to eat right. So I got to, I got to stop thinking about that because if I keep thinking about wings, I might run by Buffalo Wild. That, that's a perfect example. As a man thinks within himself, what? Stop thinking that your goal is unreachable for you. Stop believing the lie that other people can do it, but you can't. Stop following the path of least emotional resistance and be willing to pay the price of discipline to get to where you want to go, wherever that may be. You might not have a grandiose dream to do some national business. It doesn't matter. If you just want you know, 20 acres in your own house and you're trying to figure out how you can make that happen. You got a dream house you want, you know, and you, you really feel like, well, I could do, or you want to do something in the kingdom of God. You want to be involved in men's ministry. You want to do something in women's ministry. And, but but, but I, I'm just not a leader. I've just never done it. I've heard this. You know how many times I've heard this? I've just never done anything like that before. You're a prime candidate. Let God stretch you a little bit. It's a wonderful thing to do something you've never done before. Uh, my, my, my brother-in-law and I lived in New Mexico many years ago when I was pastoring a little mission church out there on, close to the Jemez Pueblo. We went on a camping trip up in the mountains. I'm talking about we had to cross a stream three times to get back to this place. There was primitive camping. Yeah, I'm glad nobody had a heart attack. We'd have surely died right there. I got to walking out there and looking in that stream, and I saw all these trout. 
And I started thinking, how can I catch these fish? And I realized the only way to catch these trout is with a fly. You've got to fish with a fly. I knew nothing. Never fly fished a day in my life. My, my daddy laughed at fly fishermen. He called them gay Englishmen. He'd go, look at them out there singing. He said, they look like little geeks. I'd be honest, he said, they look little queer Englishmen. But I learned how to fly fish because I wanted to go up there and catch those trout. And I'm not trying to impress you. I'm just telling you what you can do if you decide. It doesn't have to be this world-changing goal. I rented the videos. I got out in the yard, and I practiced in 102-degree weather. I was out in my yard throwing a fly rod in the dry dirt, you know. I know that people going by, that dude's fishing in the grass. But I learned how to cast that fly rod. I learned my first try, I tied a little leader about this long from the fly line to the fly. I didn't know you needed a 9-foot leader or a 7.5-foot with that clear water, sometimes a 12-foot. So I learned all this stuff. I went back up to the mountains, same stream, kid you not. In one day, with the same little flies called an elk hair caddis, with one same fly, never lost that fly, I caught over 100 trout in one day on my fly rod with that little fly. And I tell you what, I went home and I was beaming. It might not have meant the world to anybody else, but it meant the world to me. I'll probably tell you this story too. One of, my, one of the worst experiences of my life, I, I still have to pray my way through this after all these years from time to time. I lived out in the country close to a town called Kingstree, and my dad signed me up for Little League Baseball. And we had a place where we all were going to meet, all the boys in town and school. We're going to meet and divide up into teams. And we had teams based on the, the Optimus Club, the Rotary Club, the Kiwanis Clubs, all these, all these little social clubs that every town has. So I went to the youth center. I didn't know anything. I didn't know how, what you were supposed to do. And I had my little bat and it looked like a, a fence rail, just a cheap, rotted thing. I had a softball glove about this long. And I just looked like a country bumpkin doofus. And I walked in the youth center, dragging my little bat and my little glove. I think I was seven years old, eight maybe. I looked around, and sitting up on some tables in the corner was a bunch of guys from private school in town. I went to public school. They went to the private school. They were the special guys. Some of them went to public school. And I saw them look at me and point, and they laughed at me. And first of all, it hurt, and then it made me angry. And a couple of them had a ping-pong table in there, and they were playing ping-pong. Nobody else much was in there. They, one of them looked at me and said, hey, you want to play? I said, I've never played. They said, well, come on anyway. I said, well, thank you. So I grabbed the paddle, and of course, he just mopped the floor with me because I didn't know anything about ping-pong, and they laughed at me for losing ping-pong. So I decided, all right. So a couple of years later, my daddy said, son, what do you want for Christmas? I looked at him and I said, daddy, could I have a ping pong table? He said, why do you want one of those? I said, I just do. He said, we'll see what we can do. After Christmas, got out there in the carport, there was a ping pong table. Guess who started playing ping pong every day? God sent me a pastor who was one of the best ping pong players I'd ever seen in my life. I played him. I played him till he got tired of ping pong. I played him till he couldn't beat me anymore. I went down to Southeastern College. Remember, I started about 9 or 10. By the time I got 18 and went down to Southeastern, I started playing ping pong on the table in the gym. They had a tournament going, just whoever won. Uh, 
You lose, you lose two games in a row, you're out. As long as you win every two out of three, you man the table. I started playing at 9 o'clock. I never lost the table till the gym closed down around midnight that night. I played all day. I never got beat. You know what I did that year? I went back to King Street at the youth center. I kid you not, those same kids were in the youth center playing ping pong. I walked in and I said, anybody want to play ping pong? Yeah, you couldn't play worth a... <clears throat> Come on, we'll play you. You want to put money on it? I said, no, nah, I don't want to take your money. <laughs> I beat every one of them, 21 to nothing. Over and over and over. As many times they wanted to play, they could not beat me. It was impossible. You know why I did that? Pure ego and pride, no other reason. But I was 18 and a tearhead, and I didn't care. I just wanted to shame them, and I did. And I still feel good about it. I'm going to be honest with you. I look back at that day where I beat all them boys and sent them home with tears in their eyes, and I gotta, it still gives me the warm fuzzies right now. And I know that's terrible, and I repent for it, but it just does. The point is, I was motivated to do whatever I had to do to come back and tell them little boys, you ain't the hot snot you think you are. And I did. Now, granted, winning the ping pong game and, and doing all that was just a sidebar, and I knew that wasn't important. But the principle is this. If something means enough to you, you'll spend hours working on it. If something means enough to you, if it becomes a passion in you, nobody could have made me want to play ping pong, but those guys trying to humiliate me through ping pong, it's, it did something to me, man. You talk about motivation. And I'm not saying we should be motivated by anger and a desire for revenge. Don't be Maximus and Gladiator. Don't be revenge-motivated. But the point is, when we care enough about something to become that passionate and that driven, where we'll spend hour after hour after hour on Saturday, all the other kids are riding bikes and playing ball. I'm sitting there with a ping pong paddle doing this to the, to the wall in front of me on my table. I'm learning how to curve the ball around the net, learning how to make slams. I got to the point I could do a backhand slam. You serve it, whack, every time it's going to tick that corner and it's going to be a point. Every time, I just, I just never missed it. I just, but that's, I just did it so much. I just decided I'm going to beat these guys when I go back. The point is, whatever it is you decide to become good at, whatever to decide, whatever it is you decide to achieve, whatever goal, whatever great success, great thing, what is the great thing you want to do in your life? What is it? Define it, decide it, and then go after it with every ounce of passion you have in your life and dedicate yourself to achieving it. Learn how to say no to the wrong stuff, say yes to the right stuff, and decide I'm going to keep my focus, I'm going to accomplish this goal, I'm going to do this because God has put it in me to do it, and I'm going to do it, and I'm not going to let anything stop me. If you'll do that, there's almost nothing in this world you can't achieve. You, can, you will amaze yourself what you can do. If you'll just put the discipline to work, discipline and passion together. Passion's the drive, the emotion, the intensity. Discipline is on those days when that, that intensity and emotion might not be there. But discipline comes in and says, okay, you know what your passion is. You know what your goal is. Now here's how you're going to achieve that goal. Discipline keeps us in the right thought mode. It keeps us on track. It keeps us living an ordered life. It keeps us focused. And when you, when you get discouraged chasing your dream and pursuing your passion, discipline is the thing that causes us to be able to take our thoughts captive and to remember the reason why we started it in the first place. Why am I passionate about this? Why is this my passion? Discipline empowers us to chase after that. 
and to make it happen. What is it that you're passionate about tonight? What is it that's this thing you want to do? This thing you want to become? This thing you feel like God has put in your spirit? I I just have a word for you tonight. Don't you ever, 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 ever lose sight of it. Don't you ever, ever, ever give up on it. Don't you ever, ever, ever become so disillusioned by the passing of time that you decide to table it. Don't you ever allow some alternative, disingenuous, non-authentic counterfeit to detour you away from the real thing that God's put in your life. Don't do it. Don't settle for less when God has called you to accomplish something in your life. Do not settle. Do not make a deal with your flesh. Do not shake hands with a path of less resistance. Don't become buddies with the easy way out. Don't start looking for justifications and excuses and reasons why. Discipline keeps us focused and in the trenches and fighting the fight and paying the price to become the person who reaches the goal and grasps the passion that we pursue and becomes the best at it, becomes successful. It doesn't matter if anybody else understands your passion or not. In in New Mexico, in the dry desert dirt out there, with not a drop of water within three hours of me, I'm out there beating beating the grass with a fly rod. I'm sure none of my neighbors quite understood what I was doing. But I understood when I get back to the San Juan River, I'm going to be able to cast this thing. And I was. And today, I hadn't thrown a fly rod in probably three years. Today, well, last year for bass, but not for trout. I could go back to the San Juan River right now and almost empty that spool on the first cast because you don't forget. That's the other great thing about passion. Once you have it, nobody can take it from you. Once you've got it, it belongs to you. Don't you let life soil your dreams. Don't you let the devil take the twinkle out of your eye and the smile at the corner of your lip and the little driving engine that's in your heart that says, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. Don't you ever let that run out of fuel. Don't you ever give up on your dreams. Don't you ever think God doesn't care or he forgot. God doesn't forget anything. And he cares about how many hairs are on your head. Yeah, he cares about your dream. And he hadn't forgot. Don't you dare settle for something less than what only a miracle through God can help you provide and achieve. Because God is able. And through him, so are we. Let's all stand.